The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Live from captivity, this is Hollywood and Levine. I'm your sequestered host, Ken Levine, and this week and next, oh man, I got a treat for you. This is a great, great guest. Rob Long is with me this week and next. Now, Rob started out as a writer by getting on staff of Cheers. He since has gone on to have a very long and distinguished career. And instead of an interview, this really is more like two veteran writers just sitting around telling war stories, offering advice. It's a fascinating two-parter that starts this week. Rob Long, part one on Hollywood and Levine. Well, you talk about baby writers, which is the expression when new writers join a staff. But when I first met you and your partner, Dan Staley, on Cheers, you were baby writers, almost literally. You guys were were like almost still teenagers when you broke in. Take <laughs> us back to how you guys managed to break in so quickly and so high to break in on Cheers. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very strange. Look, I was, uh, it, it's everything has changed. I have to set up by saying this all happened during the George H. W. Bush administration. So when you say so young baby writers, I just feel like one of those infantrymen in World War One, and they're looking at the camera as, as they go over the thing and they're about to die. Um, yeah, it was a different time. So I, I was I was twenty four, which at the time was young but not as crazy young as it seems today when 24-year-olds are still living in, with mom and dad in the basement and wondering what they're going to do and like getting, really getting interested in creative stuff and whatever. Um, you know, 24-year-olds now are doing TikToks. Like that's not what we, you know, I had a job. I had to work, right? So uh, uh, Dan, my partner, was uh, in New York and he was a, an, an advertising copywriter, actually an award-winning advertising copywriter. He was basically... Don Draper, right? And he could have stayed there and been Don Draper, but instead he wanted to go. And so we wrote a couple of specs and somebody told me, uh, oh, here's what you do. You send them to, um, you, write, you watch TV and the shows you like, you write down their names 
And then you call the writer's guild. You had a call and you find out who their agents are. You got three, you could ask for three writer's agents per call when you had to hang up and call back the same lady, but you had to just do that. And, uh, and then you write those agents because they're representing writers on shows you like. And so it turned out that all the shows I liked were Cheers and other shows that were represented by the same agency. And the junior writers, uh, you know, I, I, I called up for Ken Levine and David Isaacs, and I got a name that kept reappearing, but I sensed that that name was probably a little too high. And then I found some younger writers who were also at that agency but with a new agent, a young, not a new agent, but a, so not a named agent at the time. And um, uh, I just wrote her a letter and sent her the specs. And then she started screaming at me on the phone about a month later when I called to ask her if she'd read them to tell me how hard it is to build a spec house in, in, in Ventura, which is true. She just, she just picked up the phone. I'm talking to her assistant and said, I, I, I'm going to. I'm trying to build a spec house in Ventura. It's very difficult. I'm like, okay, I, 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 all right. Um, and then, then she signed us two weeks later. And she then, because she was aggressive, she was a good agent, she called up. So that, that was the Broder, Curl, and Webb Uffner agency. And they represented... Uh, couple of writers, a couple of no names you might have heard of, Ken Levine and David Isaacs, and they, every, and they everybody else on Cheers. And she knew uh, that the, there's always staff writer money in every budget. It's like basically zero. It's not a lot, but it's there. And she kind of convinced the showrunners at the time that they needed to fill that spot with us. I don't think they were looking. I don't think they knew. Knowing uh, the guys running, Bill uh, Steinkellner, Sherry Ike, and Afif Sutton, they were just busy like making funny TV shows. They weren't, you know... They were just doing it. Um, and they said, okay, well, I guess we'll meet these guys. I don't care. No, you're fine. And then we just went in for a meeting and we weren't crazy. And, um, and they said, okay, we'll give you 10 weeks. And we started with 10 weeks. And uh, Bill Steinkellner gave me very, very good advice, which is uh, he just said, keep it shut which was very good advice for a young writer. <laughs> you know, it's very true because young writers will join the staff and they'll feel they need mm-hmm. to contribute every <laughs> <Yeah>. minute <laughs> yeah, right. when really it's sort of understood that you're new, yeah. just absorb what's right. going on. Yeah, yeah. Hey, keep it shut. So, and that's kind of how it started. And, and it's also at that point, no one, no one, it seems so simple now. And I think it actually is kind of still simple. People have made it more complicated, but it wasn't like people in, you know, you go to a college now, everybody's got a spec. They're all writing specs. Nobody knew what a spec was when I was in college. Nobody knew how to break into the TV business. I had to be in LA going to film school to learn how to do that. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it was just the right place, right time, right. Kind of like, you know, if, if you, we, we just kind of forest gumped our way into it. Um, I, I'm not convinced now that you can't do that. I think, there's a lot too much strategizing, career strategizing among uh, some younger writers, not enough just sitting down and writing specs. Um, but that's kind of how it was. And then we just sat there and then, you know, it was cheers. So it was like, you know, the show ran itself or like it had its own voice. Our job was just to not, is to not run out of ideas and energy. Well, you know? a lot of times baby writers will come in and like I said, either they will try to really make themselves known, which is a bad idea, or they come in and they are deer <laughs> caught in headlights. And, uh, and you and Dan, from day one, because that's really the first time I met you was when you guys. Yeah, I think, I think it was literally day one. Yeah. yeah, was that you guys seemed so poised 
uh, were you terribly intimidated? Because <laughs> if you were, <laughs> you did a very good job of not showing it. I think we were just too busy. Well, it, it, we were just too busy trying to figure it out all out, you know, like just, okay, this is, this, this is how this happens. This is how this happens. And I think Dan was in his own kind of space because he had just come from, you know, a big creative industry that has a certain process to it. And he was trying to figure out what, how, how this is alike and not alike how, what he just come from. I mean, literally just come from like two weeks before. Um, and for uh, I, I, somebody else, I think, <laughs> I think one of the other writers asked me, uh, asked us that, said, uh, uh, you guys didn't seem nervous. Were you nervous? Oh, yeah, nervous. Like, we didn't seem nervous. That's because we weren't fans of the show. how many episodes did you write for cheers you wrote quite a few yeah we wrote a bunch well the thing is when you're in that you know you know how it is and you're in that zone and you're that level it's like you're not you're not that important that you can you we need you here to write to do the rewrites right we have like the, the the best comedy writing talent around is coming in to help us with the rewrites we have levine and isaacs david lloyd bob ellison we're okay we need somebody to go away for two weeks and take this kind of weird very very slapdash idea and outline that we kind of didn't do a great job pitching out because we got a million things to do and they go away for two weeks and they come back and they've they've turned it into a draft and I remember just the first time we did that, the draft came back and it was terrible. And they're like, oh, they were, this, is not, this is not working. And then they gave us notes for a second draft. And then we went away and did a second draft and felt like we had like, oh, my God, we're going to get fired. And then we brought back the second draft and they're like, this is exactly what we want. Yes. Wonderful. And I remember being taken in to, I think, Sherry's office and she just closed the door. She said, it's wonderful. And I thought, okay, I, okay, now I get it. Like they, we blew it. Nobody panicked. They gave us notes. All the notes were instructive. Okay, here's why you, here's why the thing you did is moronic. Like you cannot have this happen. And then we just changed it. And then we never had that problem again. I mean, it's really, I, I actually feel like, I don't know, I sound like an old man now, but I actually feel like that is a huge problem now in, in, in TV business is that no one, nobody does second drafts. Young writers don't learn anything. Like there's never that teaching moment, which I thought was like, I mean, that's that we had, that's that was much more important to our career and our career success than me sending the, I think me sending our specs to the right agent. It was just that moment, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I, I've always observed that you put a staff together for your show and you give every staff member a script assignment yeah, and then the scripts come back and they always look like episodes of the last series they worked on, okay? Right, so right, right. If, if the guy had just been on Mad About You and you get the script back and it's a Mad About You script with yeah. your characters, and if somebody worked on a Wit Thomas show, it had that feel to it. And it does take some time yeah. to lock in to the rhythm of that particular show. And once you do, and again, as a showrunner yourself, you know how incredibly valuable it is that you have writers who can give you drafts that are serviceable, that it only takes a day to polish and put on the stage. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, it's a very strange thing, I think, if you're the writer, to be told, you are so valuable, we want you to stay out of the office for the next year. 
I just, I, I want to see you once every three weeks to come in and get another draft and go away. Um, but actually that is the script factory. That's where you learn a whole lot. And also I feel like there are, um, it doesn't usually happen the first one. It didn't happen with us. And you know, when you get, when, when you get handy with it, um, you start to anticipate problems and solve them that problems that were insurmountable really basically when the story was pitched by your bosses and the last thing you want to hear when you're the showrunner and you got a busy day is, you know, I don't know if the D scene that you pitched out is to solve it for God's sake, you fix it. What am I like? I'm not going to, I don't know right. if we really like, I don't, I, I'm done. I, I, we, I spent three hours with you on this. Now you go. And then when they, when you don't get those calls and it comes back and it's great. Um, so I think it's sometimes it's disappointing for young writers because that it's, it's, if it's good, I don't notice that you fixed all the st- bad stuff that I pitched. Sometimes right. they'll, I, I remember one time I was doing a show and writers came, a writer came back and had um, a, a couple of four or five jokes that he didn't put in that I had pitched and an elaborate explanation why he didn't put them in. And I, I could only assume that this was like, this incredibly subtle, passive-aggressive act on his part to show me, the, remind me, tell me, A, I listened to all the jokes you pitched. B, here are five terrible ones that you pitched. And I'm going to tell you why they didn't fit just be, and use story logic reasons, but you and I both know it's because they suck. And I, could, and I don't think he was really doing that, but that's, that was the message I received was like, Okay, he's sitting at home and saying, that bastard, he just pitched this dumb joke off the top of his head and everybody laughed because they all worked for him and now I got to put it in the script. And he kind of, which I, to me, I, was, I applauded that. That's that, that guy, I, I think he's running his own show now. I mean, that's exactly, <laughs> <laughs> that's where First you First time David and I got an assignment at MTM, the Tony Randall show. Sure. And for us, that was like, finally breaking down the palace wall to get a, an assignment at MTM. And we made the mistake of bringing a cassette recorder and we recorded the story conference with everybody pitching all the jokes and oh, everything wow. as we're, <laughs> we're putting it together. And here's the problem with that. We then came home and like you said, there's like all of these jokes being pitched and we're now going, which ones are we obligated to use? Right, right. You know, right. Uh, gee, this one doesn't really fit. Are they going to be mad? I mean, this was, you know, Gary Goldberg pitched this joke. Is he going to be pissed that right. it's not in, in the outline? And uh, eventually we had to just stop recording these things. It's right. like whatever jokes we thought were funny were the jokes we wrote down and the others we just forgot. But we also, <laughs> they pitched out the story to us and we did the first scene, which happens in the office. And then there's the second scene that happens at home. And basically what happens in the second scene is that Tony Randall comes back and tells all of the family members what happened in the first scene. Nothing moves the story forward. It's just a recap for the people who weren't there. There's $20 million worth of TV writing in that room, (laughs) and they sent the two young writers out with a booby trap. Basically, right. they had no idea. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that scene we check in with. Remember, the, somebody said, like, we just check in with the other characters around the bar and find out what they think about what's going on. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that scene, that C scene, okay. Yeah. 
So, Everybody chimes in. Yeah. So we go, well, what? we can't do that. So what if we withhold this information, we add this, and we change this a little bit, and blah, blah, blah. So we do the, uh, the two scenes, and we come in for it again for our second draft notes. And they were very pleased with the script, but they had some problems with the first couple of scenes. And one of the showrunners was going, well, what is this where you pitch this and then this happened? I don't remember talking about any of that. And and I said, well, yeah, we did that because what happens in the A scene, in the B scene, it's just a recap of it and nothing really moves the story forward. And the showrunner goes, oh, fuck, we're going to be here till midnight if we have to worry about shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so so we we went back to exactly right. what they wanted and we did the second draft and they hired us on staff they were so happy <laughs> who, who was it was the jerry belson who said his autobiography was going to be entitled i did it their way yeah exactly um well I, yeah i mean I, I sort of sympathize with every all the characters in that little drama you just pitched because Part of it is like I've, I've been that guy where you pitch something and you're like, that's oh, fine. And then the, the writer comes back and they got little problems. It's fine. I'm the, I know what I'm doing. And then they do it. And then you know, later, uh, this is actually the big, the huge, the biggest challenge we have, I think, in this business is, if, is, is, is evaluating the material in front of you without thinking about what it means about who's smarter and who's not, like your ego. And then I think I've been in the position where I've absolutely adamantly said, this is funny. This is going to work. Let's do this. And then you see it the first day and it's killer. You know, you got it like, oh, see, I'm, I see, I'm pretty smart. And then the second and third day you watch it fall apart because it actually doesn't make any sense. And the original objection that I steamrolled over uh, it turned out to be right. And then if you're, you know, if you are a gracious person and smart and you like a good leader, you say, see, boy, you were right. I was wrong. We can fix this. If you're um, less than that, you get mad at everybody and and go in, in your office and slam the door. <laughs> yeah, I remember one time the first year at Cheers when Glenn Charles pitched a joke. We all laughed. It was a good joke. And he said, this could be the best joke of the year. Okay, so then we go down for the run through the next day and the joke bombs. And we come back to the room. And Glenn goes, Jesus Christ, what a piece of shit. Let's get rid of this. <laughs> it's like he, he was the one who wanted right. to, to get rid of it. But you do have to be objective, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the thing that actors need to learn when you're the showrunner and you're doing different episodes week after week that – Every so often, you're going to get one that is problematic, and the cast is going to freak and panic. And you want to say to them, look, we were the same geniuses you loved last week and the week before. Okay? So, So, yes, it doesn't work. Take a deep breath. We'll go back and fix it. But And I always feel to me, like, that the fixing it is the, is the, is the skill. That's the skill. The skill isn't like some kind of weird, magical talent where you can sit down and, you know, bang out a script that's great. I mean, no one can really do that. You have to – fixing it is where the, 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 the art comes in, I think. I mean, 
You ever see that terrible movie? It's 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 not. I mean, it may not be something's got to give, but it's like in that you know pantheon when Diane Keaton's a playwright or something. And there's this shot of her. She's been blocked, and then she finally she gets it, and she knows and she she's on a roll. And they just show her it at her computer, and she's just banging the keys like crazy and laughing at her writing. And she's not really looking at the screen at all, but she's laughing and laughing, and and she's banging. She's playing the piano. They're playing the uh, the keyboard like like a like a like a dog like just pause just pause. it didn't look like she was typing any words but she was really enjoying it and that that's the idea that people have for like okay that's a person that's a writer on a roll but that isn't it at all you're like eh, i don't know this is i mean i'm gonna check an email you want to die coke i'm gonna get, you know like you do all that like stuff and then the fixing it is where but in order to fix it you have to see it that's what i would say to actors when they were like well i don't we don't think b scene works when you walk into this the, the stage to see it and I say, okay, it's like a mechanic. You take your car in, the car's making a noise. The mechanic's got to hear the noise. You know how crazy it is when you go in and you say the mechanic is making a noise and you start the car, it doesn't make the noise? Well, let me see it. Let me see it and see how terrible it is. And then we can fix it. But I think there's this fear people have that you're not going to fix it. Or the other fear, which I think people have in their lives is, what if I'm wrong and it's actually really great? Uh-huh. And then what if, what if I do it, if I really do it 100%, it turns out it's really good. Um, and then you're not going to change it, and I'm going to have said that it's no good. So everyone's, it's like half the time, it's just really the weird stakes that we put in the ground um, for our stupid ego. When in fact, I mean, I remember when I realized as a showrunner, when during the notes after every moment of your day, somebody calls you to give you notes, I didn't have to have a solution. I, you know, I was like a late in my career where I thought, oh, I don't have to know what the answer is. Right, you I just, just yeah, have to yeah, say, think, okay, thank. All yeah, right, that seemed I'll, a little I'll weird. Yeah, look into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then I, you know, and I when I I did this one, I did this uh, uh, showrunner training thing at the WGA a couple times, and one time I got this question from somebody who I'm sure at this point has gone on to a very troubled career, <laughs> and her question was, well, you know, um, uh, uh, first of all, she wanted to know why she couldn't share credit with every writer. Because she helps break the story, so shouldn't she get story credit? Just and okay, that's not cool, lady. Um, and then the second thing was, uh, uh, when, when um, the then when the t- when the executives ask after a rewrite has come in and it's really good, and after the show is on and people are really liking it, and sometimes an executive will say, "Oh, that was really great. That was really great," and they'll turn to the writer on the. Uh, title page and they'll say great script great job and it made her angry as the showrunner she's like that should come that should come to me because i'm the one who did all the work and we there's about five showrunners there on the panel and we're all kind of looking at each other like your lady you are in for a very rocky time of it this is your attitude because what i said to her was you're going to get credit anyway like the best thing to do is to turn and say, look at this brilliant staff person I exactly. hired and I'm the mentor too. And you could now, you could probably leave at three o'clock in the afternoon and the rest of your people will be so loyal. They'll do all the work. You don't have to have the solution. You've put a staff together to have a solution. You don't even have to be the best writer on the staff. You probably shouldn't be. And I feel like that's the hardest thing for the younger sort of new sort of showrunners to sort of understand is that it isn't really, that's not really what's going to happen here. You're going to get, credit for running a great show not for writing a great script i, I want to go back to something you said um talking about the value of writers getting to do a second draft and in some cases now writers don't even get a chance to do a first draft 
that shows are room written where everybody sits around the conference table and everybody pitches and rewrites, actually writes from the beginning, a first draft. But it is so valuable as a writer, like you said, not only are you improving your skills, but your problem solving and you're learning how to build stories and you're learning to differentiate different pitches. It's so valuable for a young writer to be writing a script. And nowadays, like I said, it's not even so much a second draft. Young writers don't get to do a first draft. And and I, I was directing on a show that worked that way. And I was talking to one of the young writers and he said, I've been on this show now for two years. I'm afraid to sit down and write a script by myself now. It's, it's been (laughs) (laughs) so long that I've lost confidence that I can sit in a room and just do it myself. Well, I actually, okay. I have a larger, uh, a a larger theory about this. That's probably, you may not agree with it it, it, and I'm sure people will hate it. Um, how's that for a preamble? I'm about to <laughs> say something it. you're gonna. Everybody's gonna hate. I, love I think it. it's. I think that you can do that when the show doesn't have to be funny. When these comedies, these comedies that aren't funny, that are kind of quirky and story driven. Not, not that it's bad, but like very plot heavy, and there's no spontaneity to it. I mean, the thing about Cheers was it was super spontaneous. We did it in front of an audience. It was a play. That's right. It had a kind of electricity to it that even the great single camera shows don't have because they're shot like a movie. And if you're shooting everything like a little movie and it's a little like little jewel box that you're making, um, I guess you can probably break the staff up into five teams and you, everybody writes a scene and then you come back in the afternoon and you put the stitch, the scenes together and you're telling a story that, okay, it's got a beginning, middle and end and it's got a little, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it ever catches fire. You know, there are moments of the, of the cheer, the really great cheers episodes where like this, second act is just kind of bananas because everything has caught fire and you you, it, you that's the kind of energy you get when you go and sit at a run through with really great actors and a really good script and you see oh shit this is really funny and i think that's why people watch those shows over and over again because they seem you know kind of electric and whereas some of the other ones just seem kind of like eh. I don't know. There's no energy. And I, I so like if you're writing it, room writing, I, I don't know. Room writing maybe can work, I suppose. It, it gives me a headache, but I guess people can do it. Um, but it doesn't seem to have the kind of joyful spontaneity that I like when I watch TV, you know. Right. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's just a taste thing or, or a, you know, a, a, a personal choice thing. But I think uh, people would be surprised to know when we all sit in a writer's room, I'm sure people imagine somebody pitches a joke, everybody laughs, and that happens. <laughs> yeah, that happens. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. But more often than not, someone will pitch a joke and people will nod and go, okay, that's funny. Okay, good. We'll do that. Yeah. Do that. And the audience will laugh. <laughs> but yeah, we comedy writers don't laugh except when we go down to the stage for the run-through when we right. have to laugh <laughs> for the actors yeah, <laughs> so right, that the, right. the actors, you know, get the feedback like, oh, okay, this is working. They like This it. is where the laugh will be, right. Right. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and, and sometimes you catch yourself at a run through really laughing and you're like, wow, I know, no, I was really, <laughs> no, this time I wasn't bullshitting. This was a real laugh. Um, Tom Leopold, who is, a, you know, one of the funniest people ever to walk the earth, used to do this great imitation of the, uh, the, the, the writer's staff, the writing staff laughter at the run through, which was like, I really need this job. <laughs> I, I just really need the money for this. <laughs> like the desperate laughter, like, which I just like was great, which, you know, kind of, you could kind of sometimes hear that hysteria or like, I have to leave here by 8 PM, like in the laughter. But I feel like, um, when you, I, I don't know, in the room when, when writers say, I've done this, like, Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's funny. Or that's a funny attitude. Yeah, let's let's. That's funny attitude. That that's really kind of a. It's like I don't take too much time to laugh because I I, I feel like we we got something. And the other lesson you learn or you have to teach a lot. I don't think I know how to learn it. I think it was just something that was in the air at Cheers. You would never do. Um, is not to start joking on the joke. Like so, people editorialize the. You know, you say a line like, and that's why the balloon popped. And like, yeah, that's why that purple balloon uh, exploded. No, no. What? What did? Stale. My, my partner, writing, part, writing partner Dan Stale was always really a stickler. Wait, stop! Everyone, stop talking. What was the first thing you said? Well, that—that's when the balloon popped. Okay, that's the line. That's what we all laughed exactly. at. Exactly. That's when the purple balloon exploded in her face. No, 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 no. no. That's just, and that's that, a hard that's, thing to do. That's what what we do too. If somebody pitches a line, and it does get a laugh from the room, you go. It goes in that way. And somebody will say, yeah, but it kind of doesn't make sense. And wouldn't it be better if the punchline was at the very end and you go, however he pitched it, yeah. made us all laugh. <laughs> that was a, is the line. I don't know if you were there because it was not uh, – you guys did Mondays. But there was a Thursday rewrite on Cheers. And that was Bob Ellison's day. Another just incredibly funny guy. Mm-hmm. And Ellison, former guest on this podcast. Oh, wow, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ellison uh, pitched something. You really, you know, I don't, it wasn't really much of it. It wasn't for some reason. You know, the, everybody has this moment. Like we had a story. The script was good. The story was funny. Everything was fine. It needed to be punched up. It wasn't as funny as it should be. And there were a couple more turns that we needed. It wasn't as interesting as it should be. But it's going to get there. It's a Wednesday, the first day. And then we had a run through. And Thursday it was pretty close. But the last parts weren't that. Yeah, you know, it needed, needed it needed some help normal situation normal really with the script and ellison pitched something that was really really funny and uh jimmy burroughs who was our director and impresario and you know basically the, the 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 godfather of the show and had really inerring instincts like he really does know where the funny part of the thing is he can just it's like it's it's like a it's like a bloodhound you know but he didn't, for some reason, he didn't like it. He just, he wanted something different. And we were kept pitching the kind of better versions of what we had. And then Ellison pitched this incredibly funny thing. And then uh, Jimmy said, made the mistake of saying, yeah, but that's just a comic turn. And Ellison's look on Ellison's face was like, and then he did the screen went, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I apologize. Which is not really an Ellison, he's a genial guy, but like you could right. just tell he was super pissed. Oh, 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 forgive me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I shouldn't be pitching comic turns. And he was sort of, at that point, he was sort of channeling David Lloyd. And, and Jimmy kind of looked at him on eyes. He goes, well, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I mean, we should try it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. We don't want to 
we don't want to do too many comic turns in our Cheers comedy show. <laughs> like, and he wouldn't let it go. So finally, Jimmy sort of slunk out of the room. But, and I don't remember how that story ends. I don't remember how we, whether we used it or we didn't use it. But I remember the absolute outrage on a writer's face when told that he was guilty of pitching something funny. Yeah. It's like it always pisses me off if I get the note from a network that'll say, well, yeah, um, this is funny, but, uh, Mm -hmm. and you want to stop them and say, whoa, do you think it's easy to make something funny? (laughs) You know? Oh, sure. It's funny. Oh, sure. You hit a home run, but but, your home run trot was really (laughs) slow. Yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like, the solution to the problem for them is funny. Like the, it's like a Freudian thing where the, it's like, it really is. We're not, I don't know if it's right. I think it's, I've been reading all this stuff now. So I think it's Jungian where you identify the thing that saves you and you describe it as an enemy. So you say, that's funny, but I don't know. Like, I'm not sure about funny. Well, that in Jungian analysis, which all these executives should go through, you you should be identifying that as, okay, that's my shadow. What's that telling me that I don't like this thing? Maybe that's the answer. And if they put on funny shows, then maybe they get more 15 shares. Like that, maybe that's the solution. It's like you you have this gigantic addressable market. Nobody says, I I don't care. I don't, I am only going to watch shows on certain channels on uncertain streaming uh, services. No, don't watch whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Put on something funny and it's Big Bang Theory. You put on something not funny and it's, yeah. I keep shitting on this show. I shouldn't. It's, it's the Mindy Project, you know? Um, oh, no, no one hates the Mindy Project more than me. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, it's a perfectly respectable show, right? Not, I mean, I'm not, nothing, I mean, it wasn't evil or bad or anything. It just wasn't funny. Two Broke Girls is another one I hated, too. Yeah, it was pretty bad. (laughs) Um, But in any case, I remember Thief Sutton told me this once. uh, He said it was like a really, one really bad meeting. He just, it was just a wrong day for him to go in for a meeting. He was like tired and something had happened. And he had, I mean, I think he had just sold one of his mystery novels and he was like what am i doing this shit for and he goes in and so whoever the executive is says something like you know we're just not having any success with multi-cam comedies and he just says well how many do you have on right now we don't have any on he said well do, do you think maybe that's why they're not successful you don't, you don't have any on so you yeah you you're not going to be successful if you unless you have them on i mean and no one can watch a show that's not on the air. No, that's not what we mean. We just mean, I said, I think I know what you mean. You're just not putting them on. You don't want to put them on. You don't have to come. And he, he wouldn't let it go. And I think that was, you know, he, he didn't make any friends in the meeting, but I was sort of cheering him along the way you do when writers stand up for something and you're like, I would not, I would so cave. I would, oh, you're right. They're horrible. I would not stand up. But I'm, I'm glad somebody did. Somebody yeah. with a book deal. <laughs> Of course, he's now writing for the Hallmark Channel. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Give lots of notes. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> can this? Can there be no conflict? <laughs> exactly. We we talked about David Lloyd, who was a brilliant comedy writer. Sadly, he's no longer with us. But among the many great episodes of television that he wrote was "Chuckles Bites the Dust," the yeah. iconic episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. But he was really acerbic, and yeah. he, would, he would write a script, and 
normally somebody writes a script, you turn it in, and then the staff has at it and fixes whatever the showrunner feels needs to be fixed. And you all understand that's part of the game. It's like you you don't get defensive because it's not going to work and you're not going to save your stuff anyway. Um, and so you just hope that when you turn in a script that 80% or 85% yeah. is, is going to be you and the other 15% is going to be better than what you had. And you're able to take the credit for it. So if they would change a David Lloyd script Oh yeah. And we would have the table reading and the stuff that we had changed oh, didn't work. I remember that. I remember uh, that. We come we come back to oh. the room and oh my god, he would just beat the crap out of us. Like, oh this was funny. This was much better. Much better. Yeah. Remember those days? <laughs> uh yeah, I, I think that jo- one joke was we came back from the table reading. There's always Wednesdays, and for some reason Wednesdays we'd have that deli spread from Victor's, mm-hmm. and that was so that so it was a local deli, and they put all the stuff out there. And someone said, "I think the egg salad smells funny." And David said, "Does it smell as funny as that table reading?" <laughs> And then that was kind of, he would never come right out and say, okay, all, every joke you pitched bombed, but he just, we just knew that he knew it. He knew that we knew that he knew it. He knew that we were waiting for him to say something he knew. And we knew that he knew. So everything, he didn't have to do that much. It, merely just a setup was enough to convey his attitude. Um, but he also kind of like, I mean, I, I always thought that was sort of strange about him because at that point in his career, he was so successful. He was so great. And he had so much authority that, like, he didn't just say, yeah, I tried something there. I went, I swung for the fence a little bit, and that was a little bit weird. Sorry about that. Instead, he would, like, dig in. I remember one script he had, and he had, like, uh, like you know how in, in, in parades or something, or doggy parades, the do- dogs will walk on their hind legs, these poodles will walk on their hind legs with little hats on? Uh-huh. And little, he had that. that. I think it was a scene blow or something. It was the, the joke at the end of a scene. And we're like, David, what are you, how is that? Like, you can't. And instead of saying, hey, I'm David Lloyd, I'm trying something. I, I thought it might be funny. Instead, he's like, I, I, well, okay. he got really mad. Like, I don't, like that, that is like, maybe, maybe I, I just don't have the work ethic that David Lloyd had. But I kept thinking like, man, you're David Lloyd. You don't, you can just say, I think it'd be, I would like to see it. I will come back on Thursday when we have the poodles. And I'm telling you, if you show me the poodles, I bet you it's funny. Instead, he was just sort of mad. So that was one. I think that's the other side of that of that kind of attitude you get. Half the time, I think he was totally right, and what he'd written was perfect, and we just changed it for no for just stupid reasons. And the other half, I think he thought he was dig- digging in for no reason. And that's actually the struggle we always have, like as writers, right? Am I digging in because I'm mad about the fact that it doesn't work, or am I digging in because I know it's it's going to work? I mean, you know. And, and you, and remember- you and I have had these experiences where we throw stuff out. And we're convinced to throw it out. And we're like, we should not have thrown that out. We yeah. should not have, you know. But you never know until you're done, until you're canceled. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything is revealed. <laughs> yeah. Um, the very first Tony Randall show that we did, we're walking to the stage with the showrunners. And by now, we're on staff. And the showrunner says, you know, guys, 
I think we screwed up your last scene. I think what you had is actually better than mm-hmm. what we're going to do. And of course, I just, um, you know, I'm the baby writer. So I just like, okay. But what I wanted to say is then go back <laughs> to the original. <laughs> right. Then what are you shooting something <laughs> that you know is right. not as good? Right. Okay, there's part one. I can hear you going, no, no, more. I want more. Well, next week is just as fascinating, my part two interview with Rob Long. Hey, I want to thank Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce and Jason Miller. I am available if you want to reach me via email, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I noticed after the vice presidential debate, the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head, within several hours, uh, it got 50,000 followers. So come on. I got to be at least as good as a fly. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Part two coming up next week with Rob Long. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Hollywood and Levine. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.